Every team, every topic, everywhere. This is Believe. to excuse me may i have some more we are the foodcast with an insatiable appetite my name is brad kramer i am joined by my co-host as always christine struble um hey christine hi brad how's it going it's been a couple weeks since we've done one of these um your frenetic schedule as the uh, grand poobah of foodsided.com and me simply as the co-host and waiting for you to come up for air we have a lot to catch up on, but we don't have a lot of time to do it. We have a really interesting episode this week. Um, I, th- I would best describe it as thoughtful and thought-provoking, um, more serious in tone as, as far as subject matter. And we'll discuss that in a little while. Um, but just as a, a tease, our two guests this week are um, what I call restaurant royalty in this country. Um, Alice Waters, the owner of Chez Panisse in Berkeley, California, and Jose Andres, um, a chef with uh, quite a few restaurants around the country. And uh, we'll talk a little bit more about them. But before we pivot into the serious, um, I have the, uh, the memory and maybe the physique of an elephant. And you left uh, us hanging with a story that you told me you were going to share on the next episode. And I made a note and wanted to have you actually share that story. Um, Even though we're now into November and October was national pork month. When we talked about pork on our last episode, you said you had a story or stories to share about pork and a Polish chef. Yes. So many, many years ago in Chicago, uh, the Polish pork board, hosted a luncheon three times fast. Exactly. It, it, it was porktastic. Um, they, they had this special luncheon where d- d- don't hog the airtime here. Uh, wow. We're going to go everywhere with that. <laughs> um, so two chefs came over to Chicago and host and cooked uh, a pork centric multi-course lunch for us. And they didn't give us a menu ahead of time. They just said, it's going to be all pork, sort of various ways. Um, enjoy. And what they didn't quite inform us ahead of time is that one of the chefs quite enjoyed his Polish vodka. So after every course, we were encouraged to have another shot, and which was probably the best because once they revealed the menu, it was very much a nose to tail experience. Um, everything from 
you know, simple things like pork belly, which you expected, to um, there was aspic, mm. was a lovely gelée. There was a meal what, that isn't complete until you've added something gelatinous to it. <laughs> oh, it, it was a there was a terrine, so layers of gelatinous. Oh. Uh, then what was one of the other ones? It it wasn't tongue because that's normally tough. There was another piece of another course that involved awful, and but they didn't tell us. And it and when you ate it you know, at the time, everyone thought it was just like a pork loin. Um, I, I mean, so we went through the whole gamut and then they gave us the menu as we left. And, you know, you're feeling really good after having a few, you know, cocktails. So as you that, do, but it, it goes, it was one of the things where you kind of sat back and went, you know what, when I would sit at a table or someone handed me a menu and they gave me a name of a dish and said X and it read of, you know, sweet breads and this and the stomach lining of blah, 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 blah. Most people would be like, Oh my God, no, this is disgusting. You can't, you know, there's no way I'm ever going to eat it. And Christine instead was probably like a pig and slop. Well, I mean, Yes, if I'm going to have my choice of give me a really great filet and something else that's maybe not, uh, I'm going to pick the filet. I'm not stupid, but you know, if you're not, if you don't know what it is, and you're just okay, take a bite, and it's look, it looks gorgeous, you know, very appetizing, and then it tastes good, even if it jiggles, um, <laughs> you know. <laughs> You you kind of go, oh, you know, maybe we don't need the label on it. Maybe we don't, maybe there is something to be said for that. Go into a restaurant and let the chef just guide you by the hand, take you by the hand and guide you through the experience and go with it and not, you know, have a preconceived notion. No, first of all, if I'm going to have something at my dinner table or with my meal that jiggles, it's going to come out of a box with the word jello on it. J-E-L-L-O. Watch that wobble, see that wiggle, taste that jiggle, jello and gelatin of all desserts. You'll love the one that moves and shakes and makes such fun. Make jello, gelatin and make some fun. Not something that was created from somewhere between the vicinity of the nose and the tail of a large mammal. Okay, so should we go into the fact of what how is gelatin made? It, it's from marrow and and it, like bones, and isn't it? I I cartilage. Okay, I so I was close. Yeah. Okay. I, well, thanks, I think it used thanks to be for like, that. Whatever, but I mean, but still, I mean, if you think we won't about, get, we won't be getting that Jello sponsorship now as a result. Everything's better with Jello. Uh, everything's also better with blue bonnet on it. Ooh, there you go. Yeah, I've just aged myself. It's the only margarine double blended for creamy, buttery taste. No wonder more homemakers use Blue Bonnet than any other margarine. Corn tastes better. Everything's better with Blue Bonnet on it. Buttery. I spoke recently to legendary restaurateur Alice Waters, who 50 years ago this year uh, opened Chez Panisse in Berkeley, California. Um, 
she is considered the the mother of the one of the creator of creators of one of the founders of the organic and slow food movement. Um, she even released a book earlier this year called "We Are What We Eat: A Slow Food Manifesto." And so I had a chance of talking to had the chance to talk to her um, about slow food and organic food and the origins of Chez Panisse and 50 years of Chez Panisse and um, her very exciting um, edible schoolyard project that she launched 25 years ago through her Chez Panisse Foundation. Um, She was very generous with her time and a very interesting woman to talk to and, and learn from. Unfortunately, I have not had the pleasure of ever dining at Chez Panisse. And I was just curious if you have. No, I, I haven't. When I lived in California during law school, that wasn't exactly in my budget. Okay. I was hoping that you'd say, oh yeah, you, you had the opportunity once. Um, and then they're no, opening, when they op- they're opening an LA location um, in very short order. And I've gotten to Los Angeles far more than I've gotten to the Bay area. So I'm like, well, that would be on my food bucket list to be able to experience Chez Panisse. That said, chatting with her about slow food and organic food and um, what was truly her a farm to table philosophy from day one. Um, Do you have any thoughts, feelings about that and, and the, how it's evolved and become far more prominent. You talked to uh, Wolfgang Puck earlier this year, who used to drive from Beverly Hills down to uh, Rancho Santa Fe in Southern California, outside of San Diego, just because he had found a farm there to, to provide him with the fresh produce and the fresh fruits and everything, uh, vegetables that he wanted for his restaurant. Um, it's become forefront in the food world and restaurants and food service and such. And she's trying to bring it into schools as well through the edible schoolyard program. Um, You've been doing this for a while as far as food writing and whatever. Have you noticed that uptick in awareness on slow food, organic food and and that whole farm to table? I I think it's something that's always been around, but now it's more diners are more aware of it because a lot of chefs are even putting it on their menu. I mean, if you look at um, many popular restaurants uh, across the board, it's not just the vegetables and herbs that are say, they'll say like, oh, this is featured from like Rick Bayless. So he says, this is from Three Sisters Farm in the Midwest or, um, you know, some chefs now are saying, oh, this uh, pork is from XYZ farm in wherever, which, you know, so that type of acknowledgement that it's important. And that's part of the reason why the flavor of the dish it is different than what you're going to necessarily find at your grocery store, I think is part of the conversation at the table. It also can spark the home cook to be more aware that there is a benefit to not only supporting the local farmer from from a business perspective because they are hurting, but also from the food perspective of eating local, eating fresh is much has a very different component than another uh, just opening a box and reheating in the oven. 
you know, there's anyone who's traveled throughout the world appreciates the way of eating in other countries is far different than what we see in a lot of places in the United States, just because they shop every day at the local farmer's market. Um, or the, you know, pop-up, uh, that happens across the street, you only purchase so much food for, for a day or two. You don't go to the local warehouse and fill the back of your SUV to the brim and stack things high in your pantry. Just, that's just not the way it is. So bringing it into the conversation and making it very apparent, I think that's the bigger trend, not necessarily incorporating it into a dish or a menu. It's always been there. It's just people are more aware of it now. And that's one of the fascinating things that uh, I learned in talking to Alice. Um, uh, Since the beginning for 50 years now, each menu item uh, lists the farm that the the food was sourced from, which I find uh, interesting in and of itself. But also, she went on to tell me, as you'll hear, that Chez Panisse does not have recipes. And they source their daily um, supplies and produce and vegetables and you know, fish, whatever, and then sit down and brainstorm how to best bring those uh, ingredients to life, um, make the tastiest, most appealing dishes, as opposed to just saying, okay, we have... Uh, Oh, watercress today. Let's pull the watercress recipe out of our uh, our toolbox. So I found that to be very interesting. And instead of me sitting here and trying to uh, recite verbatim those tidbits that she shared and the things I learned, let's take a listen um, ourselves. Um, this is Alice Waters, the owner of Chez Panisse in Berkeley, California. And once you are done listening to this interview, hopefully you will be compelled to seek out, whether it's on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, or whatever, her new book, We Are What We Eat, A Slow Food Manifesto. Here's Alice Waters. When you opened Chez Panisse in 1971, the country was in the middle of quite a bit of political turmoil. As you sit here today celebrating its 50th anniversary, we're now again mired in substantial political turmoil. I was hoping you could talk about your thoughts on feeding people and your approach to food during both periods and if there's any similarities despite the uh, the time time span. Well, there really are many similarities. I was very uh, shocked by what was going on in the 60s. I just was... <laughs> in the midst of the free speech movement at Berkeley and the civil rights movement and the anti-war movement, we felt like we could change the world if we all got together <laughs> and and protested. And in fact, I've never lost my hope from that period of time. I really do feel like we could still get together and change the world. And I have great plans for it. (laughs) But food is primary. Food is what we all do to survive. It's universal. 
And the other thing that's universal is education. Everybody goes to school, should. So I feel there's an extraordinary opportunity right now. And especially having experienced these couple of years in the pandemic and having the fast food industry exposed. We know what they're doing now. And we know it goes against the health of this nation. It goes against the, the values that we need to live on this planet together. And I think the most shocking part is to really understand that the agriculture that's happening in this country is causing climate change, okay. causing it. So I'm undereducated, but very interested. And I don't know if this ties into that, but your latest book, We Are What We Eat, you call it the Slow Food Manifesto. Does your definition of slow food and its vital importance to our lives, our environment, our society, and even our economic health tie back into what you just addressed? Absolutely. <laughs> because slow food is really about winning people over, understanding that food needs to be good, clean, and fair. And that that there's a way that we can connect with people at the table and teach these values through taste, through camaraderie, through a, a, a very um, determined way that we purchase food. We can make something happen that is good for the planet and good for our health, and especially supporting the people who take care of the land and arm workers for the future of this planet. So I know there's not a one or two sentence answer to that, but how do we, <laughs> how, how do we, in a nutshell, accomplish that? Well, I've thought about it a great deal over these 50 years. And I know one thing for sure, because of the Edible Schoolyard Project. Which I was just about I've to been, ask you about. Okay. We've been working at a school that has some kids and they speak 22 different languages at home. And these are kids that have been involved in a project called the Edible Schoolyard. And what we're doing is we are teaching all of the academic subjects in a classroom in the garden and a classroom that's a kitchen. Okay. And so what is happening is they are learning with all of their senses engaged. And our senses are our pathways into our mind. And we, when we aren't touching and tasting and smelling and looking carefully and listening, 
we are not really experiencing life fully. So this is the philosophy of Maria Montessori that I learned when I took her training in London in 1968. And I've never, ever forgotten. I like to to think uh, that we are communicating a set of values that everyone personalizes in his or her school. And that's what's amazing about it, that these are human values that we all share. We do. They're human values. So I feel like if we did this in the public schools in this country, if we decided that we were going Procure all of our food from local regenerative organic farms and ranches that are close by. Just imagine what would happen. Because it is that relationship of, of the school with the farms that right. brings the values right through the cafeteria door. And it's what happened at Japanese. In the beginning, we connected with a farmer, Bob Kennard, and we were willing to pay him the real cost of food, not a wholesale price, the real cost. And so he wanted to sell to us, and then he wanted all of our scraps, everything to be brought back to him so he could make compost, and he could farm his regenerative way, which is where all the nutrition is. It's in the soil. It's not in the supermarket and in the vegetables. It is in the soil. And I think we need to understand that it's that soil that's pulling down the carbon. And addressing climate change. So can you imagine that there's something we could do in every school in this country that is addressing health profoundly, that it's pulling down the carbon into the ground, that it could be feeding children for free in school, It could be bringing these values to them. And guess what? It tastes really good because it's food that is ripe and in season. So you're given credit for being the the originator of that organic movement. And if not, and if you don't want to take credit for that, at least shining a light on it through your passion and through Chez Panisse starting 50 years ago. Do do those roots, pun intended, begin with you? Or is there an unknown pre-story that you alluded to (laughs) 60, 70 years ago that influenced you and moved you and and increased your awareness? Absolutely. Going to Paris. 
changed my life. Okay. I went there when I was 19 and I experienced a slow food culture. I mean, what I ate in Paris in 1965 was food that was only local and seasonal and organic. And I didn't know that, but I tasted it. Right. And I said, when I got back from Paris, I want to eat like the French. So I was looking for taste, not really for values. I mean, I read Silent Spring and Diet for a Small Planet. I knew living in Berkeley, you just absorb that osmosis. Right. But in fact, in fact, I didn't know until I came to the doorsteps of the organic movement looking for taste that that that's where it was. And then I wanted to shout it out (laughs) so we started putting the names of the farms on the menu and then people would start asking well when are Masamoto peaches coming you know and it was that and my obsession with the farmer's market that made me know that what people were experiencing at Chapanese was not necessarily about our cooking. It was about the farmers and the ranchers and the fishermen who were growing and 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 raising those animals. It was that that gave a unique taste to the food at the restaurant. Which in essence made you the interpreter. Yes. <laughs> and you know what we're talking about is the way that food has been grown and eaten since the beginning of civilization. I mean, maybe you got spices that were evolved <laughs> along the Silk Road. Maybe you did get that, and maybe you got the special treat of chocolate or or maybe sister, citrus, excuse me, at Christmas. But we always thought about winter as eating differently and summer food. I grew up in New Jersey, so I certainly know what that was about and really know what it's about because my mother was not a good cook. Ah, okay. <laughs> and I looked forward to that corn and those tomatoes right. in the summer. Chez remains closed due to the pandemic. And obviously the entire industry has been affected. If you peek into your crystal ball, which has been um, a, a pretty prolific crystal ball over the last 50 or 60 years, what do you see when looking ahead for Chez and for the industry as a whole? Well, I'm very hopeful about restaurants around the country and around the world. We have been communicating uh, with each other 
a lot and sharing all of our ideas. But I know that our future is local. And I say regenerative organic because regenerative really means that we're actively creating soil that is full of good things and it's pulling down that that carbon. But I think that during this time, we've all learned how important our little restaurant communities are, Mm -hmm. um, how we run our business has become extremely important. People want to stay, thank goodness, (laughs) at Chez Panisse, and that we want to take care of each other. Now, that has not been the case in most restaurants and certainly in fast food restaurants where they're run in a very corporate way, with the chef at the top and all of these workers at the bottom who aren't paid very much. And it's why, of course, fast food is so cheap. Right. Uh, but we know how, how important our employees are. We're collaborating with everybody to make a restaurant work and that includes the dishwashers right they're they're invaluable they we couldn't run the restaurant without them and they need to have a nice place to work they need to be paid well they need to be connected with the mission of the restaurant and i talk about that all the time the fact that we don't want to have a back of the house that is unsightly (laughs) and people doing work in places that we don't want to look. So I invite everybody into the kitchen and to the back room. (laughs) And it's all part of, of feeling that it, it, it takes a village. I really believe that to run a successful restaurant, it takes everybody's participation. I wanted to have a little French restaurant, like the ones I ate in in Paris, where they were run by a family. You know, had a small dining room, everybody ate the same food. There was sort of a fixed price menu. And I think that's one of the ideas that has been very important to the longevity of the restaurant because every day we do a new meal and we don't have recipes. So we're sort of coming to it, as the Buddhists would say, with beginner's mind. We're right there. We're looking at the vegetables. What is the best thing to do with them? We have a framework of a menu. But we don't know until that day. And so it becomes this very important collaboration. Who wants to cook this on the grill? Who 
has an idea for the sauce for the fish. Right. Who would like to make the salad today? It's that that keeps us all inspired. And it's endlessly changing. And it's a place for interns to come and they can learn. And they have all these different points of view. You know, we have two chefs for every one position. So head chefs work three days, but they're paid for five. And what that does is keeps everyone um, um, inspired, I think, to eat in other restaurants, to look in cookbooks, to have time with their families, to come in refreshed. Right. And and it really helps for the people who work with them because there's all of these different ideas, not just one, but sort of six ideas from very experienced cooks. And that sort of runs counter to what people imagine the restaurant industry to be and imagine each restaurant's product and menu to be. You're embracing your chefs and your cooks being informed by other restaurants and other restaurateurs and other cooks and chefs. You're casting a wide net and, and welcoming, it, welcoming it with open arms. Yes, <laughs> I have to say yes. Okay. I- I'm always find out something by eating in other people's restaurants. And it's it it keeps me uh, excited about the work that I'm doing. And even though I'm not cooking at the restaurant, I'm always tasting. Right. I'm always giving feedback, even in these difficult times when I'm so appreciative of everything that comes from Chez but I know that my job is to to give the cooks my feedback and they welcome it, or I hope they do. (laughs) They say they do. So bringing us full circle, the fact that you're celebrating 50 years in Berkeley at Chez this year, you're now looking to open a new location in fairly short order, I imagine, in Los Angeles. What compelled you to finally head south and how will the LA location of Chez East differ from Berkeley's, if at all? Well, it differs completely because first of all, it's not another Chez It's not. I have been involved with projects around the world. I helped to change the food at the American Academy in Rome, but I said, I would love to do this and to help to cheerlead for it. But I have to find a wonderful cook and somebody who can run the dining room. And that is a way that I can be involved. And that is the same idea at the restaurant in Los Angeles. It is connected to the University of California. And it's inside the Hammer Museum. Right. I've always wanted to be connected to the beauty of art. 
I wanted to talk about food in relationship to art and to local regenerative organic food. I love the idea of having students come and work in the kitchens. And David Tanis worked at Chez Panisse and he's a great teacher. And he was really wanting to change from the East Coast to the West Coast. So I caught him at a good time. But also Jesse McBride is somebody who is the child of someone I knew as a filmmaker back in the 60s, Jim McBride. And so he was somebody that I wanted uh, to be involved with this project. He had worked in many restaurants around Los Angeles, and he was somebody that I liked very much and almost worked as the general manager at Chez Panisse one time. (laughs) So I knew that he shared the values and that he would know L.A. and he would know who to bring into the restaurant. And then I have a lot of artists who are friends in L.A., and one of them is Christina Kim. And she has brought all kinds of amazing people to help us figure out how to recycle everything, how to think about creating a space that that contains the values that are embedded in the food. And we're back. Hope you enjoyed that interview with Alice Waters. If you did and you are compelled, next time you're in the Bay Area or in Los Angeles, um, be sure to make a reservation and visit Chez Panisse and pick up her book. Um, Just make sure you experience uh, the work and the creativity and the delicious food of uh, one of the uh, people that, again, I refer to as restaurant royalty. and speaking of more restaurant royalty, uh, Christine, you just talked recently to Chef Jose Andres, who, if anybody is unfamiliar, especially foodies that might be listening to this uh, foodcast, um, his organization, World Central Kitchen, that he and Nate Mook run, um, is just an amazing organization that whether it's a hurricane or a power outage or any disaster that hits an an area, a geographic area, whether it's in Haiti or New Orleans or wildfires out West um, and people are without food or need food resources, his Jose Andres's team at World Central Kitchen swoops in and does um, amazing work, yeoman's work. And if there were a time man of the year that was apolitical or a time woman of the year that was apolitical, um, I think Jose Andres would be a slam dunk. Um, before we aired the Alice Waters interview, you referenced food waste and your conversation with Jose Andres was in conjunction with a partnership he is enjoying with Hellman's Mayonnaise, um, focusing on the issue of food waste. And in your conversation, he chuckled a couple of times and I smiled and enjoyed a phrase that he used called fridge hunting. So 
Before we uh, share that conversation with people, I was uh, hoping you would expound a little bit upon the uh, the food waste conversation and the, the fridge hunting. Well, I, it, it's a simple idea, fridge hunting, just to kind of discover those food items that have been pushed way in the back of the refrigerator that are often forgotten that you have to pull out from the dark deck, dank crevices and appreciate what um, is left in, in the house, that things that can be used that aren't just a one-time meal that all of a sudden, once it leaves the table, is put in the refrigerator, forgotten until you go through your weekly clear out to be thrown away in the trash. You know, it's um, it, when you think about other societies or other other groups, they don't go and do these gigantic shops for the week where you buy large amounts of food and then sometimes forget about what you've purchased. And while the shelves of the refrigerator seem to be overflowing, I think we've all been to the point where you open the door and you go, there's nothing to eat. And it's time to be a little more thoughtful that just because you have um, tomatoes in your salad at dinner and everyone doesn't finish that dish, you don't just automatically throw it in the trash. You keep that tomato water and you use it as a dressing for another salad or a pasta dish or um, as the base of a soup. Is So it this concept of one and done, I think, is starting to go away, even more so with people being maybe even a little more frugal with their food purchases that they need to appreciate the multi purposes of the food that they buy. So this is something that chef has been doing for most of his life. It's something that his children know well, uh, hopefully more families can start adopting that concept so that, you know, that one piece of chicken that you serve Sunday night at dinner can turn into a salad the next day or a soup another day and just kind of um, keep food out of the trash as opposed, you know, keeps money in your wallet too. It's got to be, you know, everyone knows cost prices are going up for food right now. So being a little more thoughtful is not necessarily a bad thing. And he, he shares some resourceful and entertaining ways of doing that and talks about how he's done so in his, his own house now um, with his kids and then growing up in a family that had food on the table, was not wanting for food, was a, a middle-class family, but still um, it was very important that uh, every ounce of food that was left around was uh, repurposed, utilized, and incorporated into another meal. And I just, I thought that was fascinating the way he shares it. Um, but instead of you and I trying to describe that, let's hear in his own words as he talks to you about this new partnership with Hellman's Mayonnaise. This is Chef Jose Andres talking to Christine Strubel. A couple questions. And I know you have been very vocal about food waste over many, many years. And, you know, looking at some of the stats that they provided um, as part of this campaign from the 40% of food waste happening at home to, you know, other facts that we know that food waste is, you know, one of the largest components in a landfill. Um, do you think that for the the home cook, is 
Is it really an issue of not understanding how to repurpose the food in the refrigerator? Or does it really start at the consumption level when they're at the store? And maybe the problem of overbuying what they um, choose to put in the refrigerator? Obviously, it's all of the above, right? Um, um, listen, I remember when I was younger and I would go to the shop every single day with my mom or my dad, and we will buy the bread for the morning, for that day, and we will buy the fish the day we will eat fish, and we will buy the chicken the day we will eat chicken. And we will buy fruit and vegetables every one or two days, uh, twice a week. Usually in my house, Saturday will be the big day of vegetables and fruits. Um, but things have changed. Uh, everybody is busier, everybody works. <laughs> Uh, everybody spends uh, maybe too much time driving. Uh, now we go once every two weeks to the big supermarket and we fill up the car to the very top. And if not, we are ordering online. That When you order online sometimes, you even forget what you order. And you have a tendency to over. So it's all of them. So obviously, we'll be very smart to understand that, that sometimes less is more. Because if not, you are more trying to be fighting against when the food is about to go garbage because it's rotten uh, uh, versus trying to enjoy yourself and cook what you really want to be eating. Um, but I think this campaign of fridge, uh, obviously of fridge hunting, uh, precisely sending a very simple message that overall I see the vast majority of Americans really care about food. I would say everybody loves food. We are, we have an attachment. We know how to cook, but we don't. We all have food stories. We all have food memories. Food is who we are. Tell me what you eat and I will tell you who you are. Uh, so just for uh, Americans to see that we can be part of something bigger, that we don't have to be reminding them every day, all of us, that this hunger in America is hunger in the world. There is food waste in America, it's food waste in the world. But still everybody wants to do something. Well, by donating to philanthropy, well, by donating time, local churches, synagogues, or, 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 or NGOs like Washington Kitchen. Everybody wants to be part of something bigger than themselves. This is a very simple way that you can feel like you are part of a bigger group of with the people, where the challenge is simple. Can we save a million meals with these uh, Hellman's mayonnaise uh, idea? that I love they invite me to be part of. By just doing something that fridge hunting you can do with your children. You can get your phone and you can go like if you were a Star Wars flying through inside the refrigerator doing a video recording. All those things that they are alone, that they are sitting forgotten, that they are saying, why you left me? The end I told me the other day in the bottom of the refrigerator. Why you left me alone? I've been sad all these 10 days. And I think it's a very fun game used to on purposely before you go shop next to say, I'm going to use the last corner of this refrigerator of this freezer of whatever else you have in your pantry, the spices even you never use in your life. And they are there sitting waiting for you to say hello. I think this is the right moment to do it coming out of this crazy uh, pandemic. We've all lived where every dollar is going to count. Uh, it's a lot of working families. Like I remember my mom, that she was a working family. I was in a middle class working family. Was, both were nurses. 
we, 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 money was not, food was not an issue in my house, but my father and mother would have to look uh, for the last peseta, the last, the last dollar, the last euro, uh, uh, towards the end of the month until the next paycheck. Is when my mom will show up, show up with the best dishes, the croquetas. The croquetas were leftover dishes that the bechamel and the ham and the cheese and the, and the chicken leftover pieces will go into it. She'll roll it with the breadcrumbs of the same bread that she kept and she will use the coffee grinder to make the breadcrumbs. Nothing will go to waste. And those croquettes were sensational. And she will be able to feed us with milk and flour and some leftovers without having to go to the, to the supermarket. To me, I think that's something like we need to, to all work harder. You don't need to be a super chef to make something out of leftovers. You only need to have the willingness to open the fridge and to say, today we're going to make a fun, a fun day by fridge hunting and we're going to do something amazing with it. And people are going to be amazed of how many meals they can be using only by having the willingness and using a little bit of the creativity that everybody has, even the people that think they don't know how to cook. If they put a little bit of effort into it, everybody can be a great cook. Well, you brought up a very interesting point that it seems that it comes from within. It, one individual can spark others to make a change. And in addition to that, it seems like it can be a family moment to get everyone going in. Um, in some ways, I kind of look back at when I was little, it was mom, dad, don't throw your bottle out the window when you're littering. So now it's my kids going, mom, you forgot that we had um, some apples in the refrigerator. What are we going to do with that tonight? Is is that part of this campaign to make it a concerted effort to start within the home and then hopefully spark a conversation to everybody else? Obviously, I know that uh, beyond this campaign that goes directly to um, tell every American household, come on, join us. Let's save a million meals together. Um, hopefully, we're going to save many more, but let's try to aim for something like it's highly doable. I know beyond Helmets, I know they've been uh, very active in trying to support the United Nations uh, development goals for the year of 2030, and food waste will be one of them, one of the corners of the many other things that have to happen. By fighting food waste, obviously, um, uh, we do many more things, right? We, we can we can reduce the CO2 emissions by the number of trips you do to the supermarket, by the number of trips the trucks have to bring food from the farms to the supermarket. It's, it's, it's many indirect benefits of making sure that we minimize the amount of food that we waste. Obviously, the family economies are going to be... Uh, 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 every dollar you can be saving is a dollar you can be helping to pay your tuition, uh, university, the, your medicines, uh, uh, school, uh, rent. Uh, I mean, come on, every dollar counts. My mom, I remember she said, today by eating croquetas is great. We're able to bring down the payment in the house. Like, okay, great. <laughs> but I don't care. Those croquetas uh, are really beautiful. So, uh, consciously and consciously, the benefits of just trying to move this campaign forward that uh, I think is real. You know, Helmets didn't uh, tell me to join them. Just to, hey, help us sell Helmets. Uh, they, they asked me to join them to send the message that food waste actually should be, should be cool and should not even be food waste. They are delicious foods. 
that maybe that avocado looks a little, little bit dark right now. It's not the perfect green that you see in the perfect ad, in the perfect photo, the perfect guacamole. But that avocado is good. Don't throw it. Just go and make something with it. You you don't like the way it looks? Hey, just put the avocado in the plate, cover it with mayo, with mayonnaise, put some uh, sumac or some sesame seeds, put some salt on top, put a touch of olive oil around. If you have a little green salad there, Put them there right there. You make a great avocado salad right there. Um, you have three leftover potatoes that, oh, well, because they were roasted, or, uh, they were boiled, and you didn't use them, and you peel them, and you mix them with the mayonnaise, and you put some tuna that also was left in the can because somebody made a, a tuna sandwich, a tuna melt, and they didn't finish the entire can, and it's going to be thrown garbage if somebody doesn't eat it with it uh, <laughs> soon because it'll be forgotten. You put it there, and you have a great tuna uh, and potato uh, salad with the mayonnaise uh, that uh, is very typical tapa in Spain, uh, but also we know it's a very typical beloved uh, dish here uh, in America. So you can be recreating an American dish or you can be recreating a Spanish dish. Just you change one ingredient here and there and you can be in a different continent right in the fingertips in the process of using things uh, that you are uh, 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 about to be thrown away if you don't do something with them. And I think that's that's a way that directly, directly, consciously or unconsciously, we all can be doing uh, a lot of good and become part of a big team. The team that is going to say, food waste no more. Let's make sure that every bite counts, that every ingredient counts. And together, with very little effort, you can be part of something bigger than you, something much more global, that in the process, we, we are helping really not only save money, but controlling, uh, creating a better world, one dish at a time, and you don't even need to think about it, but it's going to be happening. That's the beauty about this. And it seems like the, one of the biggest points of all of this is to embrace a little bit of creativity in the kitchen, to see beyond ingredients that are just for maybe one meal um, and, and expand what you can do in a kitchen. So uh, as we look at your recipes that you're going to be providing, uh, do you think that those are just a starting point to the conversation for the home cook and giving them the tools to kind of keep pushing forward? Yeah, I think I think this is going to be taken as maybe in the month uh, to come and uh, to many other I, I mean, listen, fridge hunters should be used as show, like Ghostbusters, but, <laughs> but with, you put two or three chefs in two or three cities across America and you keep going and, and you have a call and people call you and you show up and, and you go into their fridge and you give them tips about how to do it. This should be happening as we speak. Um, um, but, uh, but I think obviously cooking is one of these areas that even the people that say, I don't know how to cook, everybody can cook. Uh, when you open the can of mayonnaise, that simple thing of opening it, even if you didn't make it, is cooking itself. Going shopping is the beginning of cooking itself. I know it sounds strange, but if you grab a, an apple out of the orchard, you're beginning, that's cooking. Uh, uh, any act of doing something like this is going to be feeding somebody itself, it's cooking. Um, so for me, I think if it's a moment that everybody can feel I'm creative, even when they feel they're not. That's cooking, and 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 that's a very powerful, uh, a very powerful thing, and a very powerful moment. And quite frankly, I I see my in the kitchen is the place I always see the biggest happiness. 
well because the amazing things you do, or maybe because the terrible things you do and you laugh about them. Uh, uh, you know, uh, we all cherish the moment of sharing time cooking with somebody else, mm -hmm. and the dish is great, even the better. <laughs> If the dish is not maybe everything you dream of, I'm sure it's still good because it's okay. You know, I always say if something is not as you thought, just change the name of the recipe, and that's it. Um, and uh, if you overcook and overboil the eggs and they are not over easy anymore, just change the name of the recipe. Overcook eggs my way, right? Because <laughs> you want them more creamy, put a little bit of mayonnaise on top and bingo, you got all the creaminess you needed back into the eggs. So uh, I think, yeah, I mean, I mean, quite frankly, when, when they approached me to do this at the beginning, uh, I was like, what? But I, I began thinking about it. I talked with my daughters about it. I'm like, Daddy, that's what you do all the time. Um, I, I, I get very upset when they throw me the, uh, the little oil and vinegar and the water of the tomato of the salads. Because that, that's, that's like money cannot buy it. It's so good. It's the concentrated vinegar, the olive oil that got the water of the tomato. You eat this with the spoon. Mm -hmm. And he's like, oh, my God. And we throw that guy. I mean, keep that in the refrigerator. This is a great leftover. And you're going to use it the day after for another vinaigrette. Or, I don't know, you're going to top it. Uh, you, you, you're going to use it for a soup. Or you're going to top it. Uh, use it whisk with eggs that, believe it or not, works. Mm -hmm. And you can make these more uh, not so hard kind of omelette. It's so many things you can be doing. But me, I'm, I, 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 I love this kind of leftover. Tobas, leftovers, when you make a meal and you have two tablespoons of a little sauce in the bottom of the pan because you roasted peppers or, or, or the chicken that roasted that all those juices that are left over there in the bottom of the pan and they gelatinize. Oh my God, I'm a freak for those because that's gold. You cannot buy it. That's a matter of how much money you have. That's unique. Me, I try always to encourage people that those are things that are precious and that they, we all need to learn how to use them uh, in the days because you are going to not only be using things uh, that, that is going to help you fight food waste, but actually you're going to eat it. Some of the most delicious, delicious uh, juices and sauces and dressings only by keeping them in a little container in your fridge. Thank you for your time, Chef, and uh, best of luck with the campaign and continued success with World Central Kitchen. Thank you, Christine. And we're back. I love that conversation you had with Jose Andres. And admittedly, sometimes the accents got a little thick for me. And I, I, I had the benefit of rewinding and listening again and listening again because I was enjoying it so much and wanted to get the gist of uh, what he was sharing with you. So if anybody listening to this foodcast um, also struggled a little bit with the, uh, the accent, please do hit rewind a couple of times and enjoy the interview. It's It's an important conversation. It's an interesting conversation. And uh, he can always also be very humorous as he was at times in the conversation with you. It's interesting. We have the benefit of talking to a wide variety of people for this foodcast and also for foodsided.com. Um, and often humor comes into play and I, I like to do my shtick and insert clips into these episodes and whatever. But sometimes it's important to do an episode like this where we shine a spotlight on people like Alice Waters and Jose Andres, who are in the case of Jose Andres, not only a chef, but a humanitarian and Alice Waters, who's working so hard to make sure that 
um, people are eating the right way and in eating in a healthy way and maintaining the food cycle as it's meant to be. Um, it's, these are important conversations to, to share and to have. So it was, for me, it's a nice change. Yeah. I mean, it, when we think about stuff and it, you can fall into different route, it, different sides of the story. Yes. We all enjoy the funny notion of whether it's, you know, the absurdity of Salt Bay's $800 gold encrusted tomahawk steak, or do we really want to have a conversation of what's good, not only for the person, but also the planet uh, for our society? You know, there's a very unique situation when people sit around a table. It affords them the opportunity to be open and honest and speak their mind because that plate of fruit in front of them removes the barrier. Whether it's talking about different cultures and backgrounds, or if it's talking about an issue that maybe is difficult to broach outside of that safe space, everything can kind of come out of the table. Now, hopefully, if there's a heated discussion that you know, animosity gets whisked away when the plates leave the table, but, you know, at least the conversation is had. So I think that's one of the nice things that, you know, being in the food world affords people the, the ability to have conversations that maybe they wouldn't otherwise would. That's stated very perfectly. I guess the, the core value of food in in our world, at our table, in our families, in our households, at a, whether at a restaurant or at home. So you, you summed that up pretty well. Thank you. Every <laughs> once in a while, I say something that makes me sound quasi-intelligent. There you go. Uh, with that, I want to thank everybody for listening to this episode of Excuse Me, May I Have Some More? We are the foodcast with an insatiable appetite. Christine, it's been a pleasure as usual. Brad, always a great conversation with you. We'll do this again soon. Take care. Bye, Brad. Bye-bye. May I have some more? Thank you for listening to Believe. You can show support to your host by subscribing to the show and giving us a five-star rating on your preferred platform. Check us out at Believe.com and search for B-L-E-A-V on YouTube. You know when you're listening to a true crime story that has an unbelievable plot twist that makes you stop in your tracks? That's what our podcast, People Are the Worst, brings you with each episode. I'm Rachel. And I'm Rebecca. We're identical twins who love true crime cases that make you say, didn't see that coming, and we hate the people responsible for them. Listen to People Are the Worst now on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts.